you want to make a change, you have to every day put an effort to make that change. Otherwise, mental heuristics will take over. It's the way that the brain is designed. It wants to save energy for the cognitively demanding tasks. It doesn't want to save energy for reminding you to use your left hand to open the door when you've been using your right hand the entire time. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bruh, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my fan they can't eat. Welcome everyone to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. If you find a value on the show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. For our lifestyle brand, you can check out weareflyingwarriors.com. For the latest info, updates, and merch releases, you can check out cupofnurses.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Nicole Vignola. Nicole is a neuroscientist that focuses on cognitive neuroscience that investigates high-risk decision-making. Her previous research drew upon adult synaptic plasticity, whereby she reconstructed a section of the adult mouse somatosensory cortex using computer-based analytics, with an aim to explore the wiring diagram of the human brain. This served as a springboard for further interest and research into the plasticity of mindset change and how these principles can be adopted into everyday living. Nicole is a business owner and entrepreneur who coaches individuals and consults with organizations on brain health, longevity, mindset change, and optimization by using science-based evidence. Thank you, Nicole, for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you. Can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and what are you currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is obviously Nicole. I studied neuroscience at the University of Bristol. So that pretty much was my, my entryway into mindset change and behavioral change. So I work currently in organizations. I work with individuals and organizations both on basically optimization. So how can I, they improve their decision-making? How can they improve themselves so that they can then in turn be better in the workplace? My previous research was on synaptic plasticity. So how basically excitatory and inhibitory synapses interact on a molecular level and how those interactions basically create synaptic uh, communication. And that sort of like a springboard into how the brain can change, which I really didn't realize how much it could change. Um, so that's sort of why my Instagram is a lot about implementing habits and change and just helping people see that they have like a true potential. My current research at the moment is more in decision-making. So how can we can improve decision-making in the workplace under stressful conditions? So I know that you, you're both nurses, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So high pressure jobs that require you to sort of be on the ball and make sound decisions, if you will. That's what I'm looking at at the moment. So yeah. adding to that, then how, how can you better improve your decision-making in stressful situations? Because Man, I work in the ICU and we know that if someone loses a heartbeat, we know the protocol on what to do to try to bring them back. But when that actually happens, it's almost like we, we forget that. So how are we able to yeah. step out of that fight and flight 
part of our bodies and calm down and then slowly realize that we know what to do and that we can actually actually do it. How can we how can we improve that? There's a couple of things. So what I currently am working on is sort of micro breaks. So taking a five minute break, obviously you don't have that luxury maybe in the stressful environment, but what I'm looking at at the moment is how we can improve micro breaks before the afternoon slump. So we have these different rhythms throughout the day whereby in the afternoon you're sort of driving a lot of cortisol stress that you are sort of you have less vigilance if you will so cognitive vigilance uh, or a decrement in vigilance meaning that you are more likely to be distracted your attention span goes down so making sure that you take proper strategic breaks throughout the day that you can actually maximize the afternoon and what I mean by that is a lot of people will sort of scroll on social media in their breaks or have caffeine or cigarettes or whatever so you're not actually properly recovering your brain and without calling it a meditation and like calling it a non-sleep deep rest or a non-REM sleep. Basically, it's just closing your eyes or engaging in anything that is not having an external force on you. So either closing your eyes or even doing a meditation, if that's what it means to you, or even maybe doing something that is not engaging in something that's going to affect your mental state. So that you can actually fully come down into an alpha brainwave that you can then sort of reallocate resources to the brain so that you can then be better in the afternoon. There's another part to that. So what I also do with my clients is we work on mental resilience. So how we can actually improve resilience. And what I mean by that is actual physiological resilience. And we measure that through, so there was a, a famous study that came out, I can't remember, I think it was 2019 by Cox. He basically looked at the Wim Hof method and he looked at the psychic hyperventilation, the third eye meditation and the cold water exposure. And what they saw is that when these individuals, trained individuals actually immerse themselves in cold water, what tends to happen is that the norepinephrine levels actually only went up a little bit and not as much as they would have in the beginning. So when you first dip into a cold water, your dopamine and norepinephrine is going to shoot up probably by about, I think dopamine goes up to about 250%, which is a lot. But what happens over time is that it actually gains resilience. And what that means is when your body is stressed, when adrenaline is released, noradrenaline, or you guys call it norepinephrine in the brain is also released in conjunction to that. But over time, you can actually separate those two pathways. You can have adrenaline running in the body, but not norepinephrine in the brain. So think of like a boxer in a boxing ring. They can stay very calm. You put me in a boxing ring, I'll probably all panic. So building that resilience over time, so putting yourself in stressful situations, controlled and voluntary stressful situations, mean that, means that over time, your mental resilience will grow up. So what that means is your threshold to norepinephrine release goes up, meaning that you can stay more calm under pressure. Because... Mm, and that's a really good thing you bring up with like the whole ice bath because men not have the ice bath in our gym. And I know there's a lot yeah. of different studies going on regarding, regarding ice baths. So basically what you're saying is, is that if you could put your body in some kind of a stressful situation. So for example, if I do an ice bath every day, that's going to build my stress tolerance up and that's going to translate to, to my work, to every day in life, right? Because our body doesn't necessarily differentiate what kind of stress it is. It just understands that, hey, there's cortisol, there's stress. It's my response to, to do this. So whatever, whichever way you stress your body, it leads to the, 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 the same response with that norepinephrine and, or adrenaline in, in your case. Um, and that's gets released no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're panicking in a hospital or if you're in an ice bath. So as long as you're doing something that stresses your body physically, you're able to drive up that threshold for now having more stress. So then, yes. so that for example, if, it's almost like you desensitize in a sense. So I'm actually curious. So man, I see a lot of, you could say sadness in a hospital, a lot of 
a lot of maybe anger, a lot of, lot of death, right? So then does that also kind of desensitize us in, in that way to be less sensitive to like stress and serious situations? Potentially. I mean, that falls more along the lines of experience-dependent plasticity. So over time, you have the first time you experience something like that, it's going to be obviously very detrimental. But over time, you sort of know how to deal with that. And the brain will see that as we've been here before. We know what to do. This is what we'll do next. And that's why people actually need to give themselves a bit more credit. It's the same reason why this is not comparing death to breakups, of course. But you know, when you're 16, you get broken up with, it feels like the most awful thing in the entire world. You get broken up with when you're 30. It's like, okay, that sucks, but I've done this before. We can, we can do it again. And that's kind of something similar. Of course, there's, you know, it's multifaceted because, you know, deaths can be more traumatic. Events in the, in, in a, in a hospital can be way more traumatic as well. But in theory, yes, that could translate uh, in terms of literature. This is an anecdotal sort of suggestion. Then I, I would imagine that it would translate into being able to uh, so what i'm looking for deal with those situations better okay so what about like the notion that there's a stimulus and a response and how do you create that space between you you're talking about releasing less norepinephrine is there other methods that nurses or anybody that's working a high stress job can create or have a habit for themselves to create that space so they're not so reactive to the to their emotions yeah I mean, if you can remember to keep breathing, that's probably one of the best things you can do. So the physiological side, Dr. Huberman talks about this all the time. It's a double inhale and a long exhale. So what that does is that double inhale actually pops the sort of alveoli open to allow for more oxygen in. And that long exhale dumps any carbon dioxide. And that actually signals to the brain and the body that you are most likely to be in more parasympathetic state. If you can do that, that means that you are more likely to respond with your frontal cortex. So with more uh, logic, more sort of cognitively uh, demanding results or solutions. Whereas when you're more in a limbic state, you're more in an emotional brain, you're more likely to, going to be uh, responding with, with emotion and maybe even not making correct decisions. Mm. Is there any difference between, for example, physical stress and emotional stress? Does it affect their brain any differently or or in any of the lobes not really i mean as you said it earlier stress to the brain has stress and stress to the body is stress so it, it perceives it the same way one of the other things that's great is to completely sort of recover from that stress so what that means is when they actually did studies on this it's actually did studies on tetris it's really interesting and they had two individuals or two sorry two groups one group had to sit on the sofa after a stressful event and they actually measured their inflammatory biomarkers. So when you become stressed, your inflammation goes down in an attempt to respond to then the recovery afterwards. So that always goes up during stressful events. So they measured the inflammatory biomarkers in individuals that sat down on the sofa and sort of tried to relax. And then they measured the inflammatory biomarkers on individuals that actually played Tetris. And the individuals that played Tetris recovered from inflammation a lot quicker. And that is because the brain doesn't know the difference between being in a stressful situation or thinking about it. So the individuals that were sat on the sofa were actually still thinking about the event, even if it was subconsciously or maybe in a, we call it the default mode network. So that is a mind wandering state. You sort of have these thoughts that you don't really know what you're thinking about, but you're thinking about something when you're washing the dishes or you're sat on the sofa watching TV driving. Those sort of thoughts were still running through their heads. Whereas when they were playing Tetris, they had to completely immerse themselves in something else 
So that's when the inflammation kind of came down, cortisol levels came down and they completely recovered from stress. So making sure that you're doing that on a daily basis, obviously maybe not in the break, but maybe after work. So that's why having things like hobbies, yoga, boxing, running, Maybe if it's video games for you as well. I mean, there's a lot of data to suggest that there is some benefits to video gaming. Of course, I'm not coming out saying that people need to go and video game for three, four hours a day, but um, there is an element of positive uh, response for uh, stress. It, it almost um, sounds it almost sounds like an iPhone where you have all these apps open. If you're not closing your apps <laughs> or your mental states in between, that yeah. that app is still running in the background. So you're mm -hmm. still pumping the same stress into your body by thinking about it mentally. Exactly. And the other thing is sleep. So sleep is your best recovery tool. It's honestly the best optimization tool that you can have. Of course, a lot of people struggle to sleep. So there's an element of sort of having to get through that hurdle first. But sleep is essentially responsible for memory consolidation. It's responsible for dumping any of the day's stress away. It also has a filtering system where it basically cleans us. So the cerebral spinal fluid in the brain actually cleans out all of the toxins from the brain. It gets you ready for the next day. We release growth hormone in your deep sleep stages. So that's vitally important for cognitive function. We release testosterone in REM sleep. That's vitally important for all kinds of function, bodily functions, cognitive functions. So it's really important to get at least eight hours of sleep. There are, of course, uh, genetic anomalies where individuals can't sleep for six hours and feel absolutely fine. They don't have any of the negative effects. Um, I'm yet to meet. I think I actually know one person like that and I'm envious. <laughs> don't know if you guys are like that. But also making sure that you're sleeping deep because your deep sleep stages, so those come in the first sort of waves of the night, that's your stage three and four. I think in America, they've actually combined those two stages together. We still consider them three and four here in the UK. But that's when you are in your deepest delta wave, slow wave sleep. That's when you're releasing growth hormone. So it's vitally important to make sure that you're reaching those uh, stages. So how is sleep related to, related to cortisol in that case? Because cortisol is like the stress hormone that we, we refer to. Does sleep and rest bring down the cortisol level? How does that work? Cause, cause, and also the other thing is, I notice I work. Sometimes we have like an hour and a half break or hour 15 or an hour. I, I take that nap and I feel even more tired afterwards. So is there like a, a happy medium of how you should take a nap or, or the length of time and then its relation to cortisol as well? Um, so how long are you napping, I guess, is the question. An so let's see, the exact timing. So let's just say uh, on average, I probably get an hour break, at least once a shift, and I probably sleep a solid 50 minutes of that of that one hour. Yeah. So your sleep cycles are in 90 minute cycles. So you're most likely waking up in your deepest mm. uh, slow wave sleep. Okay. So if I were you, I'd either try and sleep a full 90 minutes or do 20 minutes mm, of sleep minutes. when you're not going into that deep sleep yet. Mm. Because that's probably why you're waking up feeling groggy. You're you're deep, you're deep into it. You're either waking up in your deep sleep, or you're either waking up in REM or REM. Mm. And either way, you don't want to be waking up in any of those two stages. Yeah, and let's say I, I wake up in like that not the good spot to wake up. Does that rev my cortisol up then? Does that impact my cortisol at all? Uh, I'm not sure actually. I'd have mm. to double check that. But your long sleep, so your eight hour sleep, mm. is where you actually get rid of your cortisol. So to get rid of cortisol throughout the day, the best way to do it is through sleep hmm. by lowering cortisol. You're sorry, by sleeping, you're lowering your cortisol. It's sort of the best reset button, if you will. Hmm. And, and then as far as sleep quality itself, is there a difference between sleeping from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. or versus we just finished night shift. We were sleeping from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. three days a week. Is there 
effects of the quality of sleep that you get by switching nights and days? And then also, what if you don't sleep the full six hours, like you mentioned, for the best effects? What if you're breaking that, that down, down in three hours and four hours or three and five, whatever it is? How does that affect the brain? There's actually something called biphasic sleeping where they studied individuals that slept for four hours and then were awake for, I think it was three hours, slept again for four hours. And they had similar effects to individuals that slept for the four, eight hours straight. So I would imagine that sleeping three and five is somewhere along those lines. In terms of literature, I'm not entirely 100% sure, but I would imagine that it would fit somewhere along there. In terms of shift work, unfortunately, it is not great for brain health. Uh, in the long run, I would, you know, and I guess, in the long run, you'd probably want to avoid doing that if that is something you can do. Uh, it's a it's a big change for the body. You know, we have this internal clock, your circadian clock. We have these ultradian rhythms throughout the day as well. So those are rhythms within your circadian clock. And they are so in tune with our surroundings. So when the light comes up, we have intrinsically photosensitive ganglion retinal cells. I don't know if you guys remember that from, did you do any neuroscience <laughs> at uh, nursing school? Uh, I don't think so. Just entry level. Yeah. <laughs> the IGPCRs, they are essentially responsible for detecting light. When that light comes in, they have a downstream cascade mechanism that basically signals to the body that you are now ready to be awake when the light is actually coming down, similar things happen. So the eyes are actually important and responsible for signaling to the body where you are. Now with shift work, what I get some of my clients to do is if they say they're coming home from, uh, so what, what are your shifts like? You What what time do you finish? So I, ideally, so this is what we do. We you work three nights, three nights a week and an ideal schedule is three nights in a row. So we would work yes. from 7 uh, p.m., get home at about 8 a.m. Okay, and then can you go straight to sleep then? So my protocol was a little bit different than Matt's. So what I, what I found to work best for me is after I do those three shifts in a row, um, I wouldn't go to sleep that morning. I would usually work out, stay up, and I would go to sleep that following night around 9, 10 p.m. So I would, I would stay up for about like 24 hours and then flip my my sleep schedule back to like you could say a normal schedule. So that's, that's what I did. But Matt went to bed right away for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I'll usually sleep right away, get my five or six hours and then go to sleep again at night and try to flip flip back the clock. Does that work? I feel pretty good, but just like anything you do, you will never get used to night shift. There's always that sluggish feeling like, I'm not described, it's like a mental fog sometimes where you're like, you know, you could be sharper, but you're not. And it's just yeah. like an accepting thing because of your shift work. Yeah. See, I, I had the same thing I used to do what Matt did. And then the next day I had that fog and that fog really bothered me. So. So what I found to get rid of that fog for me is just stay up the full day and then go to sleep oh. at a normal time. And then I, and then I woke up less with, with that fog or, or not at all. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that would be related to cortisol. And what I'm thinking for you is that maybe because you're working out, you're spiking that cortisol again. So when we wake up, cortisol levels come down. They need to come up in time to be able to come down ready for sleep. A lot of people will shift that. So they'll wake up and they won't look at sunlight. They won't work out or they won't uh, get moving first thing in the morning. That means that that whole shift of the cortisol release is moved forward. Uh, that means that then it comes down later and that's why they struggle to go to sleep at a particular time, say 10 or 11 p.m. They sort of tend to lie in bed, tossing and turning. So for any of my clients that have been traveling, 
jet lag, the first thing I get them to do is when they land, say in America, they've come from the UK, is to work out first thing in the morning, even if they wake up at four o'clock, because you want to spike that cortisol up high enough so that in the evening it's ready for bedtime. So I'm assuming that that's what happens with you when you are coming back from your shift. You're then re sort of spiking, if you will, that cortisol so that you can then get ready for your sleep in the evening. Of course, you've also sort of got the night shift behind you in 24 hours of being awake. So you'll be ready, really ready for bed. But with going to sleep first thing in the morning, if you can do that, I think you'll find that biphasic sleeping has been shown to be efficient in, in having similar results to somebody who sleeps eight hours. So I always say like it is actually down to how it works best for you. We're all individuals, we're all different. And you know, for some people you can go to bed straight away for other people, they can't. So whatever works. Mm. So I'm curious now, cause a few of our colleagues, I'll say any more sleep questions, I'll move on from sleeping to something different. They're good. I'm down. <laughs> cause a few of our colleagues, they're, they're in school and they're also uh, working. So is there a way to maybe optimize your mind or brain to better, um, better take up knowledge in school if, if you're maybe working full time or maybe doing night shift and going to school for the day is there anything that we could maybe uh, train our brains or something that we could eat supplements or anything in general that could help us kind of uh, just grab onto that book knowledge a little bit better yeah so definitely non-sleep deep rests or meditation because you'll be able to sort of consolidate throughout the day so as i mentioned earlier you'll be able to reallocate energy resources to the brain that you can then maximize yourself again for the afternoon so when you are taking breaks it's about being efficient with those breaks instead of mindlessly scrolling on instagram you can still have caffeine but what i would say is first recover fully because if you're moving from your computer to caffeine back to your computer you're releasing acetylcholine when you're drinking sorry yeah you're you're releasing acetylcholine when you're smoking cigarettes you're releasing dopamine when you are uh, drinking caffeine uh, so you're not actually recovering fully so making sure you've taken at least five max oh, sorry not maximum ideally 10 minutes of actual strategic recovery, whether that's going for a walk or closing your eyes, even a, a nap, a nap where you don't necessarily go to sleep, you'll actually be able to maximize a lot more. They've done some uh, case studies at Microsoft Human Labs. It's very new and it's really interesting. They basically put EEGs on individuals and individuals that went from meeting to meeting to meeting without recoveries, their stress levels were extremely high. So they, their brain waves were down up, up into gamma. Whereas individuals that took breaks in between, so they took 10 minute breaks, they actually stayed within alpha and beta, low beta brainwaves. And you can see that threshold, it's actually really interesting. So the, the color schemes go from blue to red, where blue is calm and red is highly stressed. And you can see, I don't have a picture on me, but it's, it's incredible to see. So making sure that when you do take breaks, that they are strategic and efficient, if you will. Um, Sleep again. So I take a magnesium supplement. So it's a full spectrum mag magnesium. If you are struggling with sleep, you can take a magnesium L3 and 8. Otherwise, there's a brand called Bioptimizers. They have something called full spectrum, which means that they have seven of the essential uh, magnesiums in one tablet. Uh, unless you are specifically looking for sleep optimization, then I would say that was probably better because it has this glycinate. It has um, it, it doesn't have L3 and 8 in it, but it does actually help me go to sleep. But if you're somebody that does struggle to go to sleep, then I would probably uh, recommend an L3 and 8 more. The magnesium is so important for so many cognitive functions. What I would also say is the lowest hanging fruit is making sure you're hydrating consistently throughout the day. So neurons communicate to each other through action potentials in the presence of water. So even a 2% dehydration can have cognitive impairments. 
So making sure that you're drinking enough water. Ideally, if you need to siphon a little bit more energy, I would introduce an electrolyte. I use Element. I'm not affiliated with them, but the, the LMNT, they are great. It's sodium and potassium. I think it's calcium in there as well. And when you think about it, neurons communicate its action potential. So um, sodium and potassium interacting through a membrane to create a spike to then generate a message, if you will. So just supplementing with that already is going to have huge impacts on your cognitive performance momentarily. Okay. I just want to let, let, I just want to let the viewers know that Matt and I actually have a little sleep cocktail that we take. And I'm glad you brought yeah. this up. It actually has magnesium three and eight. So for anybody listening, yeah. you know, when Matt and I make these little things for ourselves, it's actually research based. We take magnesium three and eight and then L-theanine. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard of L-theanine? Yeah. Absolutely. So L-theanine in conjunction with caffeine is supposed to help, especially with individuals. They've done amazing research uh, studies on individuals with ADHD. Caffeine and um, L-theanine, because caffeine actually ramps up the dopamine, which is normally what's sub-lacking in individuals with ADHD. But the L-theanine tends to take off that edge, you know, that jittery feeling, um, of course, limit your amount of caffeine. But I've been there when you need to, to siphon all of the energy for something. Yeah, caffeine and L-theanine. I have a lot of clients to take that in conjunction, and they swear by it. I don't necessarily need to take the L-theanine, but um, I've definitely seen a lot of literature and data supporting that um, together. So yeah, super cool. And then since you brought up sleep again, now this is on my mind. Is um, do you know how maybe marijuana impacts your sleep, or also the ice bath as well? A lot of people say that you shouldn't take an ice bath before you sleep. A lot of people say they like taking it because it helps them relax. So any a correlation with any benefit of either taking marijuana or an ice bath uh, before sleeping? So ice bath, I would say no, because as I mentioned earlier, it increases norepinephrine and that's kind of the last thing you want to have in your brain when you're going to sleep. So I would say do it in the morning. It's the thing that I do first thing in the morning, gets me awake. It's like, it's, I'm trying to replace caffeine with that, but I'm just like, I wake up at six and I'm like, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I need to stop. I know that I need to stop, but I don't drink. I don't smoke. So I'm like, it's fine. I can drink caffeine at six o'clock in the morning. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> um, in terms of marijuana, it's difficult to say. And, I, and the reason is I actually did a whole live on this with um, Naz. He's a neuroscientist from UCLA. He's amazing. And basically, because there are so many psychoactive compounds in marijuana or in cannabis, so there's over 300, I think, cannabinoids in marijuana alone. We only know mostly about THC and CBD, that it's actually so hard for us to really understand the mechanisms of cannabis. Everyone interacts differently with it as well. There's different strains, there's different interactions with different people. So that's why there's a lot of street talk as to what does what. So sativa makes you more energized, um, indica makes you more lazy but for some people it will make them more creative for some people it will make them more paranoid so you see how different individuals will interact differently on the same strain so it's really hard to say uh from the literature that i have seen marijuana can help put you to sleep but it doesn't improve the quality of sleep and it actually it, uh, affects the quality of sleep so you don't uh, come into deep sleep as much when you smoke marijuana so it gives you that effect of thinking that you can sleep better but there's also data to support that cbd for example is effective in putting oh not putting people to sleep that sounds terrible helping people go to sleep <laughs> um but then you know you have people who will interact differently with cbd as well so i have a client who has a genetic mutation where she actually requires to supplement with cbd and it's what helps to put her to sleep but for other people it may not be necessary 
So it's a, it's a tricky one with CBD or uh, cannabis, marijuana, same thing. And also um, there was a doctor that was mentioning how smoking marijuana decreases uh, zebra bl uh, blood flow. So if there's a decrease in zebra blood flow, what are the long-term consequences of that? Maybe it leads to neurodegenerative disease and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely a chemical that we're still exploring, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And this, sorry. I was going to talk about neuroplasticity. So if you want to cover anything, go ahead. Well, actually, it goes hand in hand, and that's what I was going to say. So when you're studying to siphon, you know, you were saying maximizing, optimizing your studies, um, increasing your omega-3 intake is going to have major cognitive functions. They've attributed omega-3s with improved cognitive function. They, um, and I would also then say anything that increases your BDNF. So you don't necessarily have to supplement this. The BDNF is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's essentially a protein that is released either when you are exercising predominantly through aerobic training, or you can supplement it through uh, omega-3, magnesium. You can take things like lion's mane and alpha-GPC, which all increase BDNF. So I have actually just started taking lion's mane purely because my friend has a company and I'm trying it out. I feel great on it. Um, so yeah, anyone that wants to try a BDNF supplement, something like lion's mane could work, but your magnesium should be increasing that as well. One more question uh, before we do one more. I just have a question about <clears throat> sleeping and alcohol. So why is, why is it so bad to drink alcohol before bed? So alcohol like lulls you into this false sense of security where you are going to sleep well, but you, you don't, you actually sleep much, much worse when you drink alcohol. So people who drink alcohol before bed, they tend to fall asleep quicker, but they tend to wake up. So I don't know if you've ever felt this. I certainly do on a night out. If I would go to bed and I've been drinking, I actually tend to wake up around 3, 4 a.m. and then I can't really go back to sleep. I toss and turn. Why that happens, I'm not entirely sure down to the mechanism. There is obviously literature out there, but I don't have it on, on hand. But I definitely know that that is the effect of alcohol. It, it doesn't, there's no, there's no positive um, aspect to drinking alcohol, unfortunately. It's a hard pill to swallow. I know. <laughs> yeah, I hear nurses take these on a breakfast beers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when it comes yeah. to neuroplasticity, how can we use that as a benefit to change our mindset? And how do we shift this everyday mindset with understanding neuroplasticity to adapt new habits to everyday life? Yeah. So that goes in hand in hand with BDNF because BDNF essentially increases synaptogenesis and is responsible for cell survival. So it's a key molecule in um, neuroplasticity. So individuals that have high levels of BDNF, have high levels of cognitive function, are more likely to um, have levels of plasticity, if you will. Children who are going through developmental stages have very, very high levels of BDNF. And actually when those BDNF levels are capped out, that's when the developmental uh, plasticity sort of halts if you will or slows down so increasing your bdnf through exercise increasing your bdnf through learning will induce plasticity right so you want to know did you want to know about habit formation or like habit changing is that what your question was yes yeah, so i feel like you answered the question about hardware maybe we could talk about the software part of things yeah that's actually that's my line did you get that from me i'm always like Brain health is my hardware. Mental health is my software. <laughs> um, great question. I think I've saw it somewhere on the podcast and I've adopted it. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I think it's pretty common phrase at the moment, to be honest. Like, but I did see it on your bio when I was looking up the notes for the podcast. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, if you can 
so the way that I like to explain it is if you can have the, the brain, the hardware working, then the software can work. You can't upgrade the software on hardware that's not working. So that we need to get those basics right. Hydration, omega-3, sleep, exercise, aerobic training, increasing BDNF levels, etc. Now you can work on the things that you want to change. So now you're primed for plasticity, you're primed to, to make a change, right? So if it's a behavioral change or ha habitual change, it depends on what you really are talking about. Because if you're talking about learning, you are most likely going to be inducing plasticity or plastic change without really having to put in that much work except for the work. Does that make sense? If you want to create a behavioral change, and does that mean that you're breaking a habit or creating a new habit, you have to have intentions put in. And what that means is you have to have attention and intention. So there are two conditions that are required for plasticity. Uh, there's a doctor called Dr. Michael Merzenich. He's one of the original sort of founding fathers of plasticity, if you will. He started doing some amazing experiments um, back in the 90s. And they were looking at how or what induces plasticity. And they did them on monkeys, I believe. And then they moved sort of onto humans. And they basically had to have tactile discrimination in their fingers on a, a, a barrel roller, if you will. When they weren't paying attention to the barrel roll, they essentially didn't have plasticity. So they, you can actually you can measure this through uh, evoked potentials. Um, and when they paid attention to it, that's when they did uh, have plasticity. So what that means is if you want to make a change, you have to pay attention to it. And what that means is on another level, you can't essentially put a French tape in the background and expect to learn French, right? You actually have to pay attention to the words, the way that you're paying attention to me right now. You could, if you wanted to, zone in on the sirens outside. I can hear the cars, I can hear the birds. I wasn't listening to them until I actually started talking about them, right? I don't know if you just had a moment like that, but you can actually zone in on something else. That is acetylcholine. So acetylcholine essentially creates a cone-like of attention on anything else. So it's bringing your attention to the frequency of the sound that you want to pay attention to. At the moment, it's the sound of my voice, but you could zone out and listen to something else. So if you're not zoning in on the thing that you want to learn, say you're scrolling on social media, you're not gonna make any plastic changes to the thing that you're learning. So if you're sitting in a lecture, you're scrolling or you're thinking about something else, you're most likely not gonna retain any of that information. So that's hugely important is attention and intention. And what that is, is those two conditions that I was talking about is that norepinephrine has to be present in the system at the same time as acetylcholine. And acetylcholine, as I said, is a cone-like attention. Norepinephrine essentially just gets the synapses ready to work. So that's why low levels of stress are actually good for the brain and acute stress. So you can't go into an exam without levels of norepinephrine, right? You have to have some kind of like oomph to you, if you will. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, that's very true because I remember when I was in high school and I would get into like an argument with my, with my family and then like the night before a quiz or an exam and I would do do a worse on that exam quiz than I would do if I had like a nice relaxing night. So that definitely translates. And I'm, I'm trying to think, is there like a maybe ideal timetable or ideal time scale on how long uh, nor how long it takes for you to like learn something i was always told that it takes 90 days to, to develop a habit so is there like a a time frame on how long you should be doing something for a neuroplasticity to actually kick in and maybe change the way you think or learn something or change a habit 
So they've done the studies on this and they, they looked at habits and it takes between 21 to 256 days to create a habit. So that range is really large, meaning that it depends on how much effort you put in and it depends on what you're working on. So a habit can either take you more than a year. How many days in a year? 356. <laughs> so less than a year, not more than a year, or it can take you three weeks, depending. But you can use plasticity straight away. You know, if, if you had to be in a sort of very stressful situation where you had to learn something new, like say, I'm just trying to think of an example. So say you playing guitar. Are... Sorry, playing guitar. Yeah. Uh, no. 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 <laughs> I need to make a bigger point. So let's say you're in ICU and something very dramatic happens and you now have to learn something very quickly, you will never forget that, okay? So that's instantaneous passage because you've got extreme levels of norepinephrine, you've got extreme levels of acetylcholine in your system. If you are sort of going about your day and you had to learn that same thing, I'm not, I can't think of an example right now, but someone asked you what that was and you're like, oh, I don't know. And then you Google the answer and you're like, oh, cool, cool, cool. You're most likely going to forget that by the end of the week, unless you repeat it in your brain, right? So you can induce plasticity depending on the environment, depending on the levels of stress, depending on how important it is for you to remember that particular piece of information. What about plasticity when it comes to something in the form of addiction, not necessarily addiction like drinking that's extreme, but let's just say it's a habit that you're trying to kick. When does neuroplasticity take effect? Or maybe how much willpower do you have to originally create to overcome that resistance where that habit doesn't hold on to you so much and that you're flowing a lot easier by changing what you currently were addicted to, quote, quote? It's really hard to say um, in terms of, of numbers because you can't beat an addiction, say, in a day. Could you beat an addiction in a month? Maybe. Depends how long you've had the addiction as well. So let's say you've had an addiction for 10 years you're most likely not gonna change that within six months. It's gonna take repetitive amounts of work to break old patterns, break old uh, neuronal sort of firing, you know, the pattern away that the neurons fire, because you have to break that down, recondition the brain to do something different. So I guess it depends on how, yeah, how integrated is that, that behavioral pattern uh, and how much effort are you putting in? Now, the thing with any behavioral change or habitual change is that it does, it require an immense amount of energy. So it's quite hard at the beginning. And that is because we have something called mental heuristics. So if anyone is trying to make a habit or behavioral change or an addiction and you're struggling, don't beat yourself up about it. The brain is basically designed to take shortcuts. It's called mental heuristics. So it's estimated that about 90 to 95% of our brains are operating on a subconscious level. We then use five to 10% for cognitively demanding tasks. So our logic brain, our neocortex, our frontal cortex that has been developed later than our the rest of our brains. So the rest of our brain is from a primal brain, primitive brain. It's more established, if you will. And for you to compete for something like that, it means that you have to put in a lot of effort to do so. So you will have ways that you operate on a daily basis that are habitual. You don't even think about them. You make your coffee in a particular way. You brush your teeth in a particular way. You use your hand to open the, the door instead of the left hand, you use your right hand. These are all things that you're not thinking about. So you can imagine how many behavioral things you're doing without thinking about them. If you wanna make a change, you have to every day 
put in effort to make that change. Otherwise, mental heuristics will take over. It's the way that the brain is designed. It wants to save energy for the cognitively demanding tasks. It doesn't want to save energy for reminding you to use your left hand to open the door when you've been using your right hand the entire time. That, 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 that makes sense. So it's always going to take the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. We just have it, to we have to consciously take that path that we want. Exactly, exactly. So and that's why people will sort of want to make a change on a Monday, but Friday they've even forgotten about what they wanted to change because you have to remind yourself every day. And if there's no cue or trigger to remind you of it, you will most likely forget. So that's why it's a daily task. You wake up and you, you remind yourself, this is the change that I'm going to make, et cetera. Or you have a therapist, or you have you know a sponsor if, you're, if you are suffering with an addiction. And that is why, because they are there to hold you accountable, to remind you that this is the path that you're on and you're making these changes because otherwise mental heuristics, again, will take over. So how does one create like habits, routines that creates that mental resilience to in this case, maybe overcome themselves as far as those bad habits that were changing, or maybe in a hospital setting, creating mental resilience to be able to withstand mental toughness and burnout, for example. One of the biggest tricks that I give to myself and my clients is if we can use the negative thing that you're trying to change as a trigger to remind you to do something positive. Because again, mental heuristics dictate that you are not going to remember to do that thing that you're trying to change. So instead of beating yourself up about it, because that's a level of control. It's like, oh, if I did this thing, if I beat up myself about it, I can make myself feel better about it and change it. You're not changing it. You're just making yourself feel bad about it. So using that as a trigger to remind you to do something else. So say you want to practice the physiological cymal. Then every time you do something negative, like talk to yourself negatively or think about wanting to have a cigarette, so you're trying to quit uh, uh, smoking, you can be like, okay, well, I've just thought about that. That's great because that that thought reminds me to then do my physiological sign. Now you're adding in something positive. So you're flipping it. Okay, we're seeing it as like a growth opportunity. And that's how I see growth is like being able to flip it from one negative thing to another positive thing. Does that kind of answer your question? That, that's perfect. Because it's almost like this Buddhist uh, teaching where they see obstacles as the key to growth. They don't see obstacles in this negative sense. Like I got to quit smoking today, but I I love it. You're just changing where this obstacle is going through the pain to create that better version of yourself that you want to. And, And the thing is, you're always going to be faced with adversity. So if you can adopt a growth mindset, you're already halfway there, right? Because if you can see adversity and stress as not a positive thing, of course, but seeing it as an opportunity for change and movement of in a different direction then i think you can shape that and see it as like an opportunity to make a positive change instead of beating yourself about it about the fact that you even thought about a cigarette because that's normal the brain knows what it knows it doesn't know the difference between right and wrong if you're thinking about smoking and it's not thinking self you know it's that's a negative thing it's just things i know that smoking makes me feel good so i'm going to do it yeah is there um a difference in the type of neurochemicals released when you're having good thoughts and bad thoughts or is it they're just thoughts and you just kind of take them for what they are yeah so bad thoughts will probably be interacting with your amygdala which is your fear response center so your stress response your, sorry your, your your fear response so it's communicating with that so we have something called the default mode network i mentioned it earlier so the default mode network is essentially your mind wandering state what are you thinking about when you're not thinking about anything else now 
for some people that can be heavily stressful and negative and sort of ruminating thoughts. That's exactly where ruminating thoughts are. That means that there is a higher connectivity in that default mode network communicating with the amygdala. But for some people, if you have more connectivity in the default mode network, it means that they could be more creative. So they can actually use their memories as inspiration for the present, something that I don't really have that much of. But um, <laughs> so you see how one system can either be positive or negative, both upregulated. So it's about being able to maybe rewire that in a way that you can then still have higher connectivity in the default mode network, but less connectivity in the amygdala. So now you're changing that default mode network to not resort to stressful thoughts, to ruminating thoughts or stress, uh, thoughts of anxiety. Okay. And then how does physical activity play a role um, on your mind or on your brain? Because I always tell people that are like, you know, having a bad day or in a bad mood or just feel depressed or in a slump. I, man, I always tell them, it, like, when was the time you worked out? It was something physical. So how does physical activity, does that benefit neuroplasticity or does that benefit fit the brain? How does that, that translate into an increased mood or is it just something that men are telling ourselves that it does, but doesn't really have an impact on? Yeah, so exercise is great for the brain. I mean, then we could probably do a whole podcast on that. So I'll try and fit it in in the sort of last few minutes that we do have, but so many pathways as to how exercise can improve your mood. One, as I mentioned, uh, aerobic training increases BDNF. More BDNF, more plasticity. More plasticity, improved cognition. You've also got um, endorphin release. You've got endocannabinoid release when you're exercising. Those are all going to make you feel good. You've released dopamine, you release serotonin. So these all neuromodulators and neurochemicals are making you feel great. We call them monoamines. You've also got, gosh, there's so many things, but like, when you exercise, so predominantly through resistance training, you are the contraction and relaxation of the muscle is actually releasing something called myokine. So they are muscle-based proteins that essentially interact with the brain and have cognitive effects. So we release IGF-1, so insulin growth like factor one, and BDNF as well. And those two have been shown to improve cognition and improve mood as well. They also increase uh, uh, proteins in the synapses. So they actually looked at the post-mortem brains of individuals that were older, uh, uh, sorry, that stayed active in their old age. And they had more synapses, or sorry, more proteins in the presynaptic neuron, meaning that they had more integrity, synaptic integrity. If you have more synaptic integrity, if you've got less neurodegeneration, you have higher sort of mental capacity, if you will, more cognition. So those are just some aspects of it. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's so much. Exercise modifies gray matter as well. So if you can stay active, you're increasing gray matter volume in your brain. And that's always going to be a wonderful thing, right? One of the wonderful things about exercise as well, and this is more along the lines of walking and running. So if there's anyone out there that's sort of a bit um, demoralized by the thought of exercise, Anything like walking, running, cycling, where you're in this optic flow, so you've got the world moving past your eyes, it assimilates to something similar as EMDR therapy. Have you ever heard of EMDR? We just somebody on a po an episode yesterday talk about it. Yeah, so that eye movement, um, so that lateral movement of your eyes going side to side when you're walking, running, cycling, is essentially mimicking what you would be doing in EMDR therapy. And what it does is that frontal cortex and the eyes moving around actually compete for resources with the amygdala. So there's actually amygdala deactivation 
when you're in low states. So that's why walking is so good for anxiety because it actually switches the amygdala off. That's why running, cycling are so good for anxiety because it switches that amygdala off. Now, of course, a good therapist will be able to bring whatever trauma or problems you have to the surface whilst deactivating that amygdala so you can pr process that information without the fear-inducing anxiety that is involved with the amygdala activation. And that's why running, walking, cycling, uh, anything that's in that optic flow state, even driving really, can actually have a calming effect on on your mood. Mm, yeah, definitely. Because I know sometimes when I'm stressed or have to think about something, I just can't figure it out. I just go for a walk, and sometimes it just, it just comes in that naturally. So cool. Yeah, and I was gonna ask the question about the default mode network is how to override it, to override the baseline of what you have. But you guys were just talking about that exercise can be one of those things to override the natural tendencies that we have between the between our thoughts and the amygdala right that's continuously yeah. releasing fear not feeling safe exactly so you you can't override the default mode network well you can so you've got the central executive network which is responsible for uh, your work your focus your attention and then you've got the default mode network and in theory those two networks switch off so when one is on the other one is not excuse me on so you can't override it in that sense because it's not good to be in work mode all the time. And it's actually one of the reasons why people work so much sometimes because they don't want to be left alone with their thoughts. And that's because they don't want to access that default mode network. However, if you can embrace that default mode network and experience sort of the wonderful things that come with it, getting through it and maybe reducing the amygdala activation whilst you're in that state, you can actually have mind wandering thoughts that are quite, you know, enjoyable. The, the way I see it is almost like you're tapping into the subconscious mind, whatever garden you created in the past 10 to 15 years, you got to kind of go in there and just pull the weeds and, you know, water the flowers that you want to in a way. I love that. That is so brilliant. I love that. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And the default mode network is where you have all your sort of ingenious ideas. I mean, when I'm driving, I'm like, oh, Whoa, I gotta quickly write that down and I've got Siri on my car and I'm like, hey Siri, write me a note. <laughs> that's the default mode network. So maybe when you're like doing the dishes or folding clothes, that's when you have some of your most ingenious ideas. Um, I don't know if you can resonate with that. Yeah, and, and do you think it you think that's why also that when for example you have a therapist and somebody's going for a session, they have you do something while they talk to you, like for example, play play Jenga. Does that help people open up more when they're focused on maybe they're washing dishes? driving a car because some of them like the most deepest conversation i've had when i was driving something about yeah. focusing on something uh, allowed me to be more open about my feelings and, and thoughts uh is there yeah. any truth to that yeah i would yeah i would imagine that you're more open you're more in that you're not you're in that default mode but you're still having a conversation but you're not because you know when you sit down and think so say you have to write something genius if you sit down you're most likely going to lose it. If you then walk away and have a think about it, it comes back to you. And I think that that's similar in the concept that you can have these free flowing conversations with people. You're still focused sort of on something else, but you're in kind of auto uh, autopilot mode because you're not, unless you're sat in the motorway in traffic, having to pay attention to like, I don't know, some guy telling you to stay or go, you're most likely going to be in a pretty relaxed autopilot state, right? Then open up and have these conversations. And like I mentioned earlier, your lateral eye movement in that optic flow means that you're actually having these conversations without the amygdala activation. So you can get it out without attaching that fear process to it. And Nicole, where do you think consciousness comes from? You think it comes from some part of the brain? Where do you think we get that consciousness from, that little voice? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tough yeah. question. 
It is. And and actually, I was reading an interesting, you know what, if you give me a week, I might drop you an email and you can put it in the podcast notes, because I was reading this amazing article about how consciousness is like the electric uh what was it was it the electric sort of like ambience around the neurons that's I think it was someone yeah but don't quote me on that I have to go back and read it properly you've just prompted me to do that it's been on my to-do list I'm gonna go back and do that tonight (laughs) that kind of almost makes sense because like when this is just a theory right it's like if the soul and the body meet and you are integrated with the nervous system then you're saying that there's like a resonance or frequency around a neuron. So it's almost like the the energetic body, the orb of light that you're infused with the the vessel, this avatar that you currently have. Yeah. It's yeah. a little bit more spiritual there. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, and I know. love it because I am actually very spiritual. Um, I have a book downstairs called The Mind and the Bo- The Mind and the Consciousness. Mm. And it basically talks about the difference. And again, I've not read that book, so I need to go and do that. You've inspired me. <laughs> Last question I'd like to ask all of our guests. So if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be and why? As in like a last time ever? Have I ever met them? It doesn't matter. Either one. They could be from the past. They could be from the present. Hmm. I'd really like to meet Dr. Hubman and Gabba Mate. Do you know him? Yeah, I'd love to. I would love to have a sit down cup of coffee with him and just just listen to him speak because I think he could answer the 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 question on consciousness and I would just be so mesmerized by everything he says and what he has as well as that like backing of science and you know I'm just going to say it but science is great but I do believe that science is not always the be an end all right there's something deeper that science can't explain there's you know um traditional sort of uh, ancient practices that we are now sort of starting to unpick with science and now they're starting to be validated by the western world but people have been talking about this for years and years and years and I think there's a lot more of that than there is there was obviously there's science to explain that to some extent but I think there's a lot of science that what science can't explain and I think that GABA could probably help me open up both doors you know, I love that's like mer- merging the Western Eastern medicine yeah. together. Yeah, but also not just Eastern medicine, more like these philosophies that we have that we can't really explain that we shouldn't. That to be honest, I don't think we should explain. You know, people are trying to figure out what love is for years and years and years, and I actually, I don't know. Maybe we will get the bottom to the bottom of it, but I also feel like maybe we shouldn't because it's one of those things that we should just keep as a mystery, right? That's true. Yeah. Actually, I'm not sure if you're a Joe Rogan fan, but Gabor Monte was on was on Joe Rogan, and uh, they talked a lot about psychology, yeah. and like he tried to figure out. Uh, he basically dove deep inside himself and tried to figure out why his relationship with his family, with his kids, and with his wife isn't isn't what what he wanted to be. And he like explains the whole process how he realized it, and he talked about it stemming from his childhood, from. His, his mother giving him away uh, during World War II because they were Jewish. So to save his life, she gave him away. But that break in a connection with his mom completely derailed him in childhood. And that kind of carried over to, to his adult life. So they go really d- dive deep in that. So it's a very interesting episode. Highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually been on my listening list. And there's a book called The Boy Who Raises the Dog. 
and the guy uh, is a uh, Bruce D. Perry. He's a doctor from he's a psychiatrist from America, and he talks a lot about this kind of stuff. So how sort of your developmental stages between zero and three are so critical mm -hmm. in determining how you're going to behave in your older years and how these patterns are so deeply integrated uh, and very similar. So he, he looks at cases of uh, murderers who uh, basically grew up in, in fantastic households and they discover why he became a psychopath. And one of them, I know we've got to go soon, but one of them was because the mother was so busy that she used to leave the baby at home and she thought he'll never remember but what happened was he never learned that affection from his mother. So that skin on skin co contact, that somatosensory input from the skin never went in. So he never developed that feeling of empathy, love, affection and intimacy with someone else. So he never had the, the, the conditions to feel empathetic towards other people. So he could actually murder people and not feel bad about it. Yeah, wow. that's so crazy. Yeah. And it's like and Matt says it all the time. It's, he says, like, unfuck yourself. So it's just like one part of there's a part of life that you can control, like the now. When you're an adult, you have your fully functioning brain, you can control things. But remember, when you're a child between the age of zero and four, you, your whole life was dependent on somebody else. So it's like you learned what your parents gave you, and it's like that part you can't control. You can't control that part. You were given what you were given. You had the life that you have. And now until you become an adult is when you could kind of start, start uh, deraveling that and unpackaging that and kind of changing it. So it's kind of crazy how how it's like we don't only have impact on our own lives, but we also have impact on other people's lives and our children's lives. And so you yeah. might not know how important that is, but it is just as important. And some that relates to sometimes unfucking yourself is if you've had I don't want to say bad parents, but parents that didn't raise you to like the ideal, which is okay. We're not, none of us are raised to the ideal, but some of the traits that that we learn from our parents are the bad traits, and you you go through life trying to unlearn those. And that's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of the, the way um, life takes its toll. Absolutely. I have a whole course on this. It's called Rewire Your Narrative. And it's essentially looking at how we have these repeated narratives that we have been telling ourselves since we were children. Or maybe somebody said something to you when you were like six, seven, eight years old, and it stuck with you. And you went through your whole life believing this particular mm. thing. You know, I have people that believe that they weren't smart because their parents told them that they weren't. And it's just wild because you know, they, they never do anything with that or they, it lets, it dictates their entire life based on this one thing. And you, you know, as an adult, you think that one little thing had such a major impact, but to a child that is so wildly important and so critical in that developmental stage that it will sort of change the entire trajectory on how you operate. And that's why things like bullying are so awful, you know, childhood abuse, so awful and the way that you see your parents interact. So maybe, you know, in any shape or form, it could be positive or negative, but it's actually has such a huge impact on how you will then behave later in life. Mm, yeah. And then Nicole, where can people find you? So I only have Instagram. I have a LinkedIn. I don't really use it. So Nicole's Neuroscience and my website is Nicole'sNeuroscience.com. So that's where you can find my course and any sort of related information about me. Awesome. Nicole, I just want to acknowledge you for taking the time being on this podcast. You are a wealth of knowledge. You shared so much about neuroscience, shifting mindsets, neuroplasticity. So thank you for that. There's so much more questions that we probably have about the brain. So maybe we'll have you back on. Thank you for your time. Yeah. So thank you so, so much for having me. I really appreciate you guys reaching out for the second time because I know I, I couldn't do the first time around. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Bye-bye. <laughs>